This is a podcast where we talk about art supplies. Our aim is to educate and inform and help you become an expert on art supplies. If your job is to sell art supplies, then this podcast will be perfect for you. Or maybe you just want to know more about art supplies, in which case this podcast is still perfect for you. This is the only podcast that deep dives into obscure, scientific and historical fun facts relating to art supplies. If that sounds good to you, then stick around and join us as we all attempt to become art supplies experts. Hello everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today we're going to spend an entire episode on one pigment. We will be talking about ultramarine blue, also known as French ultramarine and also known as lapis lazuli. So actually it turns out there are two pigments, the natural version extracted from crushed rocks and a synthetic version made in furnaces. And the invention of the synthetic version, that's one of the things we're going to talk about. And it was one of the most significant events in the history of artist materials. So it's a good one to start with, but more about that later. Right, well, by the time we've finished this episode, hopefully you'll be on the way to becoming an expert on the colour ultramarine. Uh, I remember in the podcast trailer, I promised a deep dive into topics, and I think I'm going to deliver that promise on this occasion. So my aim is for you to get a new appreciation of ultramarine blue, and hopefully you'll understand and connect with it, and maybe when you pick up a tube, you're going to feel something special about the colour that you didn't before. See how we go. All right, so the most important thing before we get into any of the nitty-gritty and the technical details is, well, what does the colour ultramarine look like? Well, of course, it's a blue colour. It's a vivid, deep blue colour, and it's a highly saturated colour, which means that it has a strong hue and doesn't appear washed out. And ultramarine blue has got a slight violet tint to it. So what would be great would be to just show you a picture of ultramarine blue. And normally on a podcast, which is designed to be an audio-only format, that wouldn't be possible. But we've got a few tricks on this podcast. So first of all, for each episode, I can create a special episode artwork piece that will appear in your app. So on this occasion, you're going to see an example of a painting that's used ultramarine blue. It's Sasso Ferrato's The Virgin in Prayer, painted somewhere around 1640 to 1650. And the Virgin's cloak, of course, is painted using ultramarine. And it's beautiful and it's rich, it's colourful. Look at that, it's, it's nearly 400 years old but looks like it was painted yesterday and it's just a classic example of this colour. So you can see that on your podcast app. One thing that you'll find during this podcast actually and in future podcasts is podcasts do allow things called chapters and with each chapter you can then insert an image and that'll appear in your app. So as I talk about things, I can put images up and you can look at your phone and see the image that we're talking about which will help if I don't describe it well enough verbally. So 
If you're listening via an Apple iPhone, it's easy. Just use the native app and you'll see chapter images appear as we go along. On an Android, you might have to download an app like Pocket Cast or Overcast. Now, I know those apps will allow you to see these chapter images as we do them. The other thing is that this podcast will also be appearing on YouTube at some point, and on the screen I can uh, add some of the pictures there, of course, on YouTube. So I've done that now on the YouTube version. So check out the links in the show notes to see if we have a YouTube channel up at the time that you're listening to this podcast. All right, so I said that it's a rich blue colour it's got a tendency to have some slight violet to it, sort of reddish tone. And of course, that would mean with a blue that it tends to be on the warmer side of the blues. So if you're looking in a palette to have a cool and a warm blue, then ultramarine blue could well be your choice for the warm blue. Many of the other blue pigments are tinged with green. So Ultramarine does not have that feature to it. So yes, as a blue, it is on the slightly warmer side compared to many of the other blues. Now, you've all seen colour wheels, and they're a handy thing to use, especially for beginners. One colour wheel I came across, which is relevant to our discussion about pigments, is a colour wheel produced at handprint.com. It's produced by Bruce McAvoy. And he's basically put pigments into the colour wheel with their position as to where they should be. And, and that's a very handy reference source. So have a look at your app. You'll see the, the larger version of that colour wheel. And then I've zoomed in to show where ultramarine appears in that colour wheel. And you can see that it's veering to more of the violet side rather than the green side compared to, say, cobalt blue phthalo blue, Prussian blue, and colours like that. So that's a handy resource to look at when identifying where pigments sit in the colour wheel, and I recommend it to you. All right, so for centuries, the naming of pigments was confusing and unsystematic, and there were no standard definitions. People could call a pigment whatever they wanted. Often an unscrupulous manufacturer would try to pass off a cheap inferior pigment as being an expensive pigment. So a single colour could be known by a dozen different names and two or more entirely different colours could be known by the same name. Today's colour is an example of this. I started off the episode by saying we will be looking at ultramarine blue, also known as French ultramarine and also known as lapis Lazuli. Is there a difference? Are they the same thing? The answer is a little bit complicated. So for the moment, just understand these concepts. Lapis lazuli is the rock which is crushed and lazurite is extracted to form a pigment. It is the natural pigment found in nature. Ultramarine blue and French ultramarine are the same thing and mean the synthetic version made by mixing substances and heating them in a furnace. So that's the difference between lapis lazuli, the rock, and ultramarine blue or French ultramarine, the synthetic 
furnace made version. Just to confuse things, the colour created by using lapis lazuli would be called ultramarine blue. So ultramarine blue means the synthetic substance or the colour you see if you paint with either the natural or the synthetic product. So what are you getting if you buy a tube of paint? Invariably, the synthetic version. And how do we know? Well, fortunately today, to avoid this problem of nomenclature, the naming of things, we've adopted the colour index and standards created by the American Society for Testing and Materials, ASTM. So if a manufacturer states that a product complies with an ASTM standard, then we know exactly what we are getting. And that group has specified a pigment for the synthetic version of ultramarine blue. And they've given it a colour index name and number. So the name is Pigment Blue 29, which is abbreviated to PB29. And the index number of 77007. The one you have to worry about is the PB29. You'll see it on a tube of ultramarine paint for sure. So what is it? What is pigment blue 29? It's essentially, well, in chemical terms, it's a sodium aluminium sulfosilicate. And there's a specific chemical composition the formula is in the show notes. Hopefully you'll see it on your screen. And if you buy a tube of ultramarine paint and it says PV29, then that's what you're getting, that exact chemical formula. And what that means is it'll come with a light fastness rating, also according to the standard of the ASTM, the light fastness standard being the top-notch Number one, excellent rating. This pigment is semi-transparent. It is inorganic. So the organic pigments are things that come from insects or vegetation or from animals. The inorganic pigments usually have some sort of metallic mineral rock type of feature to them. It's synthetic because on the whole it's man-made rather than the naturally made rock version that's increasingly rare to find. It's not particularly toxic, but of course you wouldn't want to breathe in the dust. Don't do that. Right. Let's keep going with words and their meanings and the origins. Ultramarine literally means beyond the sea because the Italians, when they were using it, were getting it from Afghanistan. And that's where it was coming from, beyond the sea. So ultra meaning beyond, marine being the sea, and that's how you get ultramarine for that word. Lapis lazuli, lapis means stone, lazuli means blue, blue stone. Some places I've been reading have said that lazuli means a place, lajoad, one of the places they were mining and so they would say it's uh, lapis lazuli is the stone that came from that place. What's really happened over time is that place has become famous and synonymous with the word blue, and it's almost interchangeable. So lapis lazuli, blue stone, is probably the most common 
understanding of that word. Anyway, so lapis lazuli, a rock. It's not an element or a mineral. It's a rock containing multiple minerals. Lazurite, diopside, calcite, pyrite, a bunch of stuff in there. Have a look on your screen. With a bit of luck, you'll see a lump of it as a picture. It should be recognisable perhaps to you. So the rich blue colour in the rock is due to the sulphur in the lazurite. So when you're looking at that rock, you'll see there's all sorts of gold flecks and other bits and pieces in there. The trick with lapis lazuli was to crush those rocks and separate the blue lazurite from the other materials to try and get the strongest, purest colour of blue that would be possible. And that was a time-consuming task. So the way they would do it, and they invented this system in around the 12th or 13th century, so this was in Europe where this was invented, they were still importing the rock from Afghanistan into Europe. And what they would do is crush it down, create a powder, and they would mix that with wax and pine rosin and oil and gum mastic and create a kind of a dough, much like a dough that you would see with uh, if you were making bread, for example. And they would knead that dough in a lye solution or a, or a water solution. And essentially, the dough would catch the impurities while the lazurite would be released into the liquid and settle. So that was how they would do it. But it took a lot of work, a lot of kneading, and a lot of effort. And that was one of the reasons for the great expense of lapis lazuli. And that was one of the major reasons for the expense or the high cost of lapis lazuli. Right, so the process for this was recorded by different writers, one of whom was Sanini. Uh, he was writing in the 15th century. He devoted several pages to detailing how the lazurite was extracted. And one quote I'll read to you was this, uh, quote, You must know also that it is rather the art of maidens than of men to make it because they remain continually in the house and are more patient, and their hands are more delicate. But beware of old women. There you go, ageism and sexism from the 15th century. Okay, it was expensive. You had to get it from Afghanistan, ship it all the way across to Europe. You had to spend a lot of time crushing it, kneading it, and getting this colour. It was treated like gold in the painting world. And it was such a beautiful colour. It performed such an important function as a strong blue colour without a greenish tinge. Every artist wanted it. But it was expensive. And wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a cheap equivalent? And eventually there was. And this is the story of the invention of synthetic ultramarine. As I mentioned before, one of the major events in the history of artist materials. So as a podcast dedicated to artist materials, this is a story that really interests me. I hope it interests you. So 
what was happening was uh, there was an observation recorded by Goethe, G-O-E-T-H-E, in 1787 as he was travelling in Italy. He noticed blue deposits on the walls of lime kilns near Palermo. And he remarked that the glassy blue masses were cut and used locally as a substitute for lapis lazuli in decorative work. Although he didn't mention whether they were crushing it and using it as a pigment. Seems probably not. Some years later, Tassert, T-A-S-S-A-E-R-T, he found blue masses in soda kilns in the glass factory of St. Gobin in France in 1814. And he thought, hmm, sent it off for analysis with a chemist, and it showed that the blue material had a similar chemical composition to the natural ultramarine derived from lapis lazuli. So he communicated his findings to the Society for the Encouragement of National Industry in France with the suggestion that on this basis there might be a way of making lapis lazuli if it's appearing as a byproduct in these furnaces, maybe it could be intentionally made. So he suggested that they investigated, and the society in 1824 thought, yes, it makes sense. They offered a prize of 6,000 francs for the discovery of a workable industrial process whereby a synthetic ultramarine could be manufactured. I just think that's an amazing thing where people have wandered around, seen these bits of blue on the side of kilns, recognised it's similar to lapis lazuli, figured out there must be a way of doing this intentionally, and the prize was won and awarded in 1828 to Jean-Baptiste Guimet, G-U-I-M-E-T, and he managed to sell it when it was in production for 400 francs per pound in Paris. And at that time, the natural pigment, the lapis lazuli, was 3,000 to 5,000 francs per pound. So he was selling it for a tenth of the price of the mined rocks that were being crushed. Uh, At the same time, there was a German person who had made a similar discovery. There was a bit of an argument about who really was first, but the French guy won out. And that's probably one of the reasons why it's referred to as French ultramarine is because of the discovery of the process by a Frenchman. So there we go. You're using the word French ultramarine. Remember that history. Right. Other things to think about with this pigment is, in terms of features, when it's ground in oil, it doesn't mix that well. They've got to work really hard to make ultramarine blend beautifully with oil. So it tends to go stringy. It's a bit erratic. So a little bit tricky for oil manufacturers, the ultramarine. If you decide you're going to make your own paint using pigment and oil, it might be one of the ones that gives you more grief than some of the others. There's also a thing with acid. The native rock and the synthetic version are both very light fast in the sense that put them out in sunlight, you know, exposed to light, they're very light fast. 
so they're quite stable in that way. But if exposed to even very weak acids, they will break down, decolorize and decompose the ultramarine very quickly. So it's to do with the chemical makeup of the ultramarine and the ability of weak acids to uh, break down some of the chemical bonds. So the issue of the effect of uh, acids on ultramarine is connected to a phenomenon called ultramarine sickness, and that is where certain pieces of art have over time faded in unusual ways where the suspicion is that acid is responsible. Maybe an acid medium was used or an acid varnish or an acidic atmosphere. It's a tricky one to try and nail down. It might be a reason why you might avoid it in a fresco if it was in a situation where it might be exposed to an acidic atmosphere. So that's one of the unusual features of ultramarine. In terms of history, the actual nuggets of stone were used in ancient Egypt, but no one seems to have been uh, grinding it into a powder and using it as a pigment at that time. So the earliest examples are from around the 5th century where there were wall paintings in Chinese Turkmenistan and also near the mining site in Afghanistan at Thamiyan uh, in the 7th century. So when you're using ultramarine, you are following in the footsteps of artists from as far back as the 5th century. The colours rise in the West coincided with the Renaissance and its increasing preoccupation with the Virgin Mary and things religious. From about 1400, artists were increasingly depicting the Madonna wearing ultramarine blue cloaks or gowns. And I showed you earlier the Virgin at Prayer from 1640 to 1650 it was made. And it's as much a tribute to ultramarine as it is to Mary. So in terms of the differences between lapis lazuli and the synthetic version, there are really none for practical purposes. When examined under a microscope, it's possible to easily detect the difference between the two. But in practice as a painter, very little difference. Of course, the synthetic version was more consistent. The particles were often finer than they were in the natural product, but ultimately extremely close in terms of performance. So, bearing in mind that the synthetic version did not exist before 1828, um, this factor has proved important in detecting some forgeries. For example, if you were forging a painting where the original was done before 1828 and you used the synthetic ultramarine, which could only have been acquired after 1828, and if somebody could see that, then they would immediately know that it was a fake. So only the most ignorant would attempt to pass off a painting made with synthetic ultramarine. But a few fakes 
fell at that hurdle. A few people got caught. So that was one way of detecting fakes. A famous forger, Han van Meegeren, was too knowledgeable and too cunning to be caught so easily. He used natural ultramarine when he sold the fake the men at Amos to the museum as a Vermeer. What no one knew at the time was that his ultramarine looked genuine but had been contaminated with a small amount of cobalt blue, which wasn't discovered until 1803. It was first used as a pigment in 1806. So the forgery was apparent. Just to finish off, there are some famous examples of the use of ultramarine blue that would be handy to know. The sole source of lapis lazuli in Europe in the early days were quarries in Badakhshan. That was an area now known as Afghanistan. And the wall paintings near there in around the 6th or 7th centuries seem to have been one of the first instances to have used the mineral as a pigment. There's an image in your app for that one. And because of its beauty and high cost, ultramarine blue was used for the robes of Jesus Christ and the Virgin Mary. And there's an image of the healing of the man born blind. And it shows that tradition in its earliest years. This would have been around 1307 that it was painted. Of course, Jesus with an ultramarine blue cloak. We've also got one of the most recognisable paintings, Vermeer's The Girl with a Pearl Earring, and again uses lapis lazuli. And another example would be Renoir's The Umbrellas. This is from about 1881. It's using the synthetic ultramarine, which is available at that time. And even Van Gogh, a wheat field with cypresses, contains synthetic ultramarine. And it's used in some of the blue areas and in some of the green. And it is unusual to find ultramarine mixed to form green. Before synthetic pigment became available, this would have been far too expensive, a way of making a significant amount of green. But once the cheaper pigment came onto the market, that became an option, and Van Gogh was mixing green using what would have been previously prohibitively expensive ultramarine. So there you go. I hope you've enjoyed that rundown of ultramarine, a beautiful colour, a commonly used colour, a fascinating backstory, and now we have a bit of a connection with it, a bit more of an understanding Maybe you'll never look at a tube the same way again. Well, we hope you enjoyed that episode. If you want more information about the episode or this podcast, you can look at the show notes and there will be information there. There will also be information about how to contact us, give us some feedback, ask us some questions, maybe correct us if we've made a mistake. If you really like the show and you want to help us, then the best way to do that is to tell your friends, the people you think might be interested in this podcast, Tell them about the podcast, get them to subscribe, pass the word around. That really is the best way to promote a podcast is by word of mouth. And if you'd like to help us, that's the best way you can do it. 
Okay, until next time, bye for now.